0: This week on the Backtable Podcast. As interventionalists, whether you're cardiology, gastroenterology, interventional, vascular, we all are trying to think uh, on the fly and really using technology and devices to advance our practice, along obviously with the learned skills. If I think the listeners, your viewers, are thinking about innovation as being inextricably bound to commercial outlet and entrepreneurship. That's not necessarily the case. I I believe that innovation um, really is is predicated by inspiration, uh, which is really about thinking about everything you do uh, and really finding those opportunities to improve.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and of course on backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products, developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINI and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad Protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Silicon Valley and co-founder of an early stage device company in the pulmonary space. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Series, where you will hear stories from physician innovators who are helping to shape the interventional field through health tech. We are excited about our special guest this week, Dr. David Liu. Dr. Liu is an interventional radiologist in British Columbia with an apparent endless passion for innovation. He's helped start several companies at the crossroads of digital health and medicine and is currently a scientist mentor at the Creative Destruction Lab, one of the largest seed stage tech and science-based incubators in the world. Today, we're going to hear how he leverages his technical background to find solutions to unmet needs ranging from the IR suite to elevators. Yes, elevators. With that, Dave, thank you so much
0: for coming on the show and welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm absolutely delighted to uh, be here with you and your audience. Uh, It's really an honor and a pleasure to spend this time with you. Great.
1: Thanks so much. All right. Uh, Let's dive in. So tell me a little bit of, tell us a little bit about
0: yourself. Where do you live? Training background? What does your practice look like now? Sure. Um, Well, my current position is uh, with the uh, University of British Columbia, and uh, I'm an associate professor in the school biomedical engineering uh, which is a new school that intersects uh, the faculty of medicine as well as the faculty of applied sciences working towards development of med tech advancements both in the physiologic as well as human device interaction space i'm also a practicing interventional radiologist with vancouver imaging uh, in vancouver british columbia at vancouver general hospital uh, and that's kind of really where the uh the rubber hits the road so to speak where the practical aspects of my clinical practice really give me inspiration uh, to leverage out into the school of biomedical engineering.
1: That's awesome. So, are you full time clinical? Do you have protected time to do innovation or company work?
0: Sure, that's a really good question. Um, there are a couple of intersections that I have uh, and have had in my career. Uh, there's the clinical aspect. There's the innovation slash um uh, innovation slash uh, startup slash technology aspect, and the academic aspect. Um, and although they intertwine, uh, my clinical practice is oriented in such a way that the clinical practice really drives uh, the uh, practice group. So um, although the practice group is a uh, academic group, um, basically the time that I spend in the innovation space is outside of the uh, confines of my clinical practice from a, from a job career standpoint. So as a result, if you were going to kind of slice me and dice me, which is a little bit difficult to do given the um, synergies between all those different facets. I'm 70% clinical and the rest of my time I spend academically or in the innovation space.
1: Great. Yeah. I've often found that if you're going to be involved this much, you you have to have, you absolutely have to have some time uh, where you can really sit back and think and and get things done on your, on the company side.
0: Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, if you're turning and burning all the time, there's not enough time to be able to reflect of- where the unmet needs are, where the opportunities are, and potentially translate that into something that it can improve care to patients and uh, efficiencies for practices. Yep, totally agree. So diving into some innovation, can you
1: get tell us how did you get started? When did you get started with innovation? And, and what made you want to do that?
0: Sure. I think, um, you know, just, just to begin with, I, I would say that um, I've never really thought of myself as an innovator uh, and more thought of myself as a problem solver. I've always been interested in making things work better, um, and look at it from the lens of trying to make um, practical applications for, uh, for or solutions for the problems that exist. So um, being labeled as an innovator is, uh, is a somewhat kind of awkward situation because I've never really thought of myself as an innovator. However, when I look back upon uh, my career, uh, and uh, I think um, based on some of the conversations that we've had in the past, I've realized I kind of uh, fit in that box. For all intents and purposes, I would say that innovation kind of start, starts with a mindset. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, as you've kind of gone through your process and as the audience has, have as well, there's always uh, a moment in time where you you have a great idea and it may be fleeting. And it's about trying to evolve it into something that's actually really tangible. And I would say that in my background in computer science, uh, especially in the, in the um, uh, early 90s and uh, late 80s when I was really kind of full on into it, uh, that was really an opportunity and an environment where everybody was doing anything and everything that they wanted, and it was all just kind of enshrined in code. That thought process has really um, transcended my career uh, and uh, really translated into some of my earlier uh, uh, innovations in medical school as a medical school student.
1: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, your first project uh, that you worked on in med school.
0: Sure. I would say that the uh, the first project that really kind of uh, started this journey was actually in the space of interventional radiology. And back then, interventional radiology was uh, uh, much more primitive and much less clinical. However, uh, performing all these invasive procedures requires informed consent. And uh, what I did was I, uh, I uh, used my coding background and created a, a, an early uh, web based uh, patient consent program, where essentially patients could go through a consent process in an automated fashion. You could log uh, all of the information that they were collecting and also branch out uh, through options menus into more detail, the more of the details associated with complications or potentially the statistics associated with that uh, with outcome. Like
1: if you were like if you were doing a lung biopsy, for example, you they could go into pneumothorax and then see the rates of a pneumothorax.
0: That's correct. Yes. So it kind of gave a, a, it kind of gave a patient the opportunity to empower themselves if they really wanted all the, all the gory details. And back then Dr. Google didn't exist. So it was really kind of meant to be a source of information. Okay. So I wrote this program, kind of created the database, put it on my zip drive. And some of you in the audience may know what that is. And I took it to Skiver, uh, the Society of Cardiovascular Interventional Radiology, which was the precursor to the SIR. uh, And this was in 1997. Uh, I had to bring my CRT uh, um, monitor, which was a 19 inch monitor, along with my massive brick uh, CPU uh, Pentium 4 computer and put it in the middle of the poster displays. And we uh. walked around the display area. It was the only computer there. So wow. I left a, uh, I left a, uh, a little comments uh, sheet for people to comment on. it, And I still remember one to this very day. One of the comments said, great idea, but completely impractical because nobody has a computer and nobody knows how to use a computer. Well, that would change very fast, uh, but so this
1: is important to highlight. You already had skills in computer science, correct?
0: Yes, I, I had a, a background in computer science and programming, and um, uh, some software engineering uh, background too. So that's always really um, allowed me to take that moment of inspiration and uh, look at solving the problem or or making the um, or creating the solution in a stepwise fashion. And I think that that's kind of one of the uh, common misconceptions is that the innovation eureka moment comes to you in toto. Mm-hmm. But as as, a, as um, many of uh, the innovators in this series have uh, have probably have stated or, or probably feel, uh, it's an iterative process. And really, the innovation is one thing, but the execution is 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 a is an, another skill set and another uh, discussion altogether.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's a process. It takes time. You earn the knowledge to improve it to make it better. But I, I find it fascinating that you were at computer science in the in the 90s. That was, you know, great predicting on your part, uh, I think. Uh, well, I think
0: it, it's funny you mention that because I, I have to be completely honest with you. I think I was actually the uh, uh, the dumbest person out of all my friends in terms of computer science because I'm the <laughs> one that decided to go into medicine. Uh, all my friends are now retired um, yeah. <laughs> after riding the internet wave and the uh, B2B wave and, and a yeah. whole bunch of uh, iterations. So... Uh, it's not necessarily, I, I think, uh, the choice, but I did follow my passion, which was uh, which was medicine.
1: Oh, that's great! That's great! What a great story! So, uh, next, how did you kind of expand on your innovation experience from this project? What was what What was number two? Like, where did you get involved? I assume let's skip forward. Did you get involved with industry when you were when you were out?
0: Sure, I, I think um, the uh, uh, my involvement evolved over time. Uh, medical school really taught me that I wanted to be in a space where I could uh, use the skill sets I had in computer science and try and find a you know a brave new world of opportunities, um, not only just in terms of the diagnostic but interventional side. So that's why I chose radiology as a specialty because there was just so much uh, fertile ground for exposure, uh, evolution, and innovation. But through my uh, residency, I realized that, uh, that innovation, at least in terms of the way that it shaped out in my career, really divided into three categories. And that's kind of how mentally I still see my contributions in, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, being able to create new things or solve problems. The areas that I realized that, that we really have strength in interventional radiology are in disease management, in technical refinement of procedures or techniques and transformational technologies and if you take a look at the cross-section of what we do as irs or as interventionalists as a whole we actually touch on all three of these uh, these spaces so through that experience through my residency i was really kind of looking at disease management and technical refinement um, because quite frankly as a resident let, let's let's be completely honest nobody trusts you with that, with something new or exciting all right uh, with that in mind, uh, during residency, um, you know I was looking at uh, at uh, different projects or opportunities for disease management technical refinement, uh, through looking at hydrophilic coatings uh, and, for instance, uh, hepatobiliary intervention, and in describing some of the uh, the techniques that we had used for management of iliofemoral DVT. Uh, in using ultrasound uh, for trauma setting as a substitute for peritoneal uh, peritoneal sampling for uh, uh, um, those trauma and acute situations, and it it kind of naturally evolved. I ended up doing some consulting for the day, uh, for the uh, Canadian military uh, to teach them how to do fast ultrasounds. Uh, ended up working with some companies um, with regards to clinical trials design. Uh, and from there, it just kind of led into fellowship where I was fortunate enough to do my fellowship at Northwestern when uh, a technique which was largely unknown, known as radioembolization, was just starting up in 2003. It was more of, a, it was more of an evolution than really eureka moments, um, but certainly finding the opportunities wherever I was at the moment really um, created the, uh, the fodder for, uh, uh, for exploration.
1: Well, I think that's a nice segue when you mentioned uh, Y90. So you developed a dosing app for Y90. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Why did you do it? When did you do it? And uh, what are the next steps for it?
0: So the app that uh, that I developed and it started off in 2015, and it's called uh, Daver, the Dosimetry and Activity Visualizer for yttrium 90 Radioembolization. And it really stemmed from my experience of riding the uh, the hockey stick kind of uh, exponential growth and mm-hmm. recognition and popularity of Y90. Um, back in the day, uh, you know, it was considered the pinnacle of of, uh, of interventional radiology to be able to have a Y ninety program starting. Through my training, I was agnostic to uh, the resin and glass wars, which uh, many of the viewers or many of the listeners are, are aware of. Uh, but eventually, uh, eventually, um, um, started working more closely with uh, one of the companies and functioned as a medical director for that company. Realizing that dosimetry, which is kind of the geek out math part of uh, of Y90, was still very much a black box, but that uh, individuals were, were treating with Y90 without a full of knowledge because of either the marketing or the influence or the discussions um, regarding the physics of dosimetry, I thought to myself, okay, let's democratize this um, this concept. Let's try and create something that all users can use in order to understand the basic physics and leverage that out to optimal patient care. So it was literally just trying to make things work better uh, from the lens of practical application. Uh, So the first iteration was an iPad app. Um, Of course, when it first came out, I had a couple of my friends who were also performing y to look at, and they were saying, wow, this is way too complicated. I don't understand what's going on. But after a couple of months and a couple of years, uh, it slowly started to evolve. Uh, I realized that the unmet need was based on portability. So ported the app over to an Android and iOS version that could be used on, Android phones and um, and iPhones rather than the iPad, and then it really took off. Currently, it's the um, most popular dosimetry app used in the world. Uh, It has a user base of about four thousand people. About six hundred people use it uh, use it regularly on a monthly basis, with over two thousand sessions being used. So, um, it really was kind of a testimony, I think, to addressing uh, the unmet need in the in the uh, in the user base. That being said and perhaps we'll get into this later on, um, this was really, in my mind, a category of innovation, not entrepreneurship, which is a different, a different discussion altogether. However, at this point in time, even though it was a free app, uh, there is a growing interest uh, in terms of the commercial side. The app may actually go to a commercial point at some point in time, but it was never intended to do that.
1: No, that's great. I mean, it really does sound like you democratized it. And it sounds like it could potentially give a lot of a lot of irs out there the confidence to do these procedures um, and feel like they're getting the right dosing Um, so i feel like that's a a really fantastic addition Uh, i'm excited to see where it goes for sure with that i i've seen that you've been on uh you worked at merit medical uh before you were on uh the board is that correct
0: that's right. Um, I was uh, honored enough to be invited on the uh, board of directors of Merit Medical. Uh, Merit Medical is a, a medtech device company uh, that's based out of Salt Lake uh, City, Utah. It's a publicly traded on NASDAQ with a uh, current market cap of believe, about $3.2 uh, $3. to $3.5 billion, depending on how, uh, depending on the day of the week and how how good the market mm-hmm. is at, as treating it. Right. Um, it was a fantastic experience. It certainly was looking at the whole um, innovation cycle from a completely different perspective. But do the,
1: sorry to interrupt, you're on the uh, finance committee, is that correct?
0: That's correct. So I was on the, uh, I was on the um, board of directors, which was mm-hmm. broken up into subcommittees. Uh, and the subcommittee that I was involved in was the finance committee. And that was the committee that was involved in uh, looking at biz dev or business development Uh, as well as uh, the mergers and acquisition side of the business. So uh, so so-called inorganic growth opportunities uh, that would be the the business term is accretive to uh, accretive to the bottom line.
1: Right. And can you explain that a little bit more for listeners who may not be familiar?
0: So if we break up med tech companies, there are kind of in various degrees of evolution. You have the startup space. Um, where it's kind of a mad scramble to be able to get uh, a product or a series of products along uh, a certain intellectual property line or developmental pipeline to market. Uh, you have small cap, uh, which is generally, uh, generally speaking, less than a billion dollars in valuation publicly traded uh, that is usually kind of a blip in the radar and may potentially undergo uh, substantial or massive growth. You have mid cap, which is kind of like the middle child where you're kind of trying to grow up, um, develop a larger base, but also maintain the um, loyalty and interest of the shareholders in the market. And then you have the large cap or strategics. Large caps and strategics are the multi-billion dollar companies uh, the, um, that you're you know, very well aware of, the Medtronics, the Boston Scientifics, uh, uh, the, uh, the Cook Medicals. So the finance committee uh, within, this, uh, within uh, uh, Merit Medical really existed within what's referred to as a mid-cap company at the time. And our job was basically to identify uh, companies uh, smaller companies that may have uh, costs involved in certain aspects of their operations, let's say something as mundane as accounting or logistics, or potentially look at the um, the potential pull through, in other words, the synergies that would exist from a product or a device with the current offering of the company and uh, fold that into the company in order to increase the margin. And if we could find companies that were, that were able to do that, in other words, strategically or technologically, that was what was referred to as an accretive acquisition. So it was something that we'd bring on, potentially bring in savings through, uh, through, um, having a, an HR department or accounting department, or having trucks that happen to deliver to the same hospital or having a, an opportunity of a, a, product device, uh, that has a margin that's higher than our current margin of, uh, of the, uh, the bottom line or the, um, the income statement and, uh, acquire it, uh, through, um, uh, through, uh, friendly acquisition and then stretch out the, or amortize the um, the revenue to the point where it actually adds to the company value.
1: Okay, so you said a lot of financial stuff there. So let me say, so accreted, basically, you're saying uh, if you can bring in a company or a product that will immediately add to the bottom line of Merit Medical, whereas if it doesn't, say you acquired a startup because you just loved the product, but maybe they were running at a, uh, they weren't they weren't making a profit at the time. Maybe they were running at a loss. They they were just burning through investment dollars at that point. That would be a dilutive investment, correct?
0: That's correct. It's diluted because it's uh, a deferred. It's uh, basically you're deferring the uh, potential income or bump um, based on an investment that's predicated on calculated risk.
1: Yes. So down the road, you're saying so in five years, this may cost us money now, but in five years, we will recoup that plus more going forward.
0: That's absolutely right. And, and I think that was one of the big lessons that I learned um, looking at uh, med tech and looking at, um, um, you know, the interventional space and medical device uh, from this lens And in, in that in, in business, it's really about calculating risk and determining whether you have an appetite for it. And that's something very different than from my uh, software engineering or software programming days. And certainly from the difference, uh, uh, different from the perspective of the practice of medicine.
1: No, I, I think that's, that. that's something that I think we really don't get a lot of exposure to as, as physicians. And it's something to think, you know, for, for guys out there that are starting their own company, uh, you really have to think how the strategic thinks, and you're giving us a chance to think about that right now. And, uh, you know, if you're not thinking about, are you going to be dilutive or accretive to the bottom line, then you're not necessarily thinking about what a strategic would care about.
0: Absolutely. I, you can put it any better. Um, when you look at a dilutive, uh, dilutive acquisition, it's about what the potential of this could be based on an assessment of the technology, uh, the intellectual property, and the market space. When you're looking at an accretive, uh, you're basically looking at how you can improve the bottom of the line. So oftentimes accretive acquisitions uh, are, are either undervalued or kind of boring things. Uh, things that we use on a day to day basis in which the cost basis or cost of manufacturing uh, delivery and and logistics is fairly fixed. So you're slightly increasing margin. Uh, when you think about the you know sexy new technologies that are transformative in what we do on a day- to- day basis, those are oftentimes quite expensive, and the valuation is based on future earning potential, not not uh, not current uh, not current potential. So it really is an investment based on calculated risk.
1: And which one is easier to get through a finance committee for an
0: acquisition? <laughs> well, the finance committee usually usually uh, uh, is a group of uh, business managers, accountants, and uh, bankers.
1: Uh, uh, I think and, I know the, the answer. Hold on. <laughs> but yeah.
0: <laughs> so there, there, there's so much to it that uh, actually um, becomes for lack of a better term, sterilized in terms of the excitement uh, when you're just looking at a spreadsheet and, and plotting it out based on your projections. Um, that, uh, as you can tell, the uh, uh, usually the uh, accretive ones are, are the ones that are no-brainers and the diluted ones are the ones that are, are really where you need to dig in and calculate out the market and the risk before before investing.
1: Yeah, I think that's really, really important to understand for, uh, for startups that are thinking about being acquired in the future, which... You should be, I think, you should be at least thinking about where your startup is going. For medical devices, they're often so expensive that you will often need a strategic partner. And we talked about that before in other episodes, but at least having an idea of the process that the committees use, I think can be helpful for
0: them. Absolutely. And, and the bottom line is that the process in which committees use, even in, in the situation of a dilutive acquisition, has more to do with the value relative to the de-risking of the investment. And um, uh, by de-risking, what I mean is the following. Uh, As a startup, the longer you can run, the closer you can get to a regulatory threshold, let's say FDA approval, um, the more value you put into the company and invest and therefore the multiple of the value then increases exponentially as you get across that line. Um, so there are certain milestones that, uh, that companies are looking for, uh, and as you pass each milestone, the valuation or multiple of, of, the valuation of, of, your company increases. Uh, the very first milestone is an intellectual property. If you kind of run up to a, a manager of a company, uh, you know, a, a sales manager with your tinfoil hat on, waving your hands in the air, telling them about this great device that's going to make a bazillion dollars without actually having your ducks in a row, um, that really has no value. Uh, if you can develop some intellectual property, uh, that certainly creates the intellectual prop uh, through patents that creates a halo on a stack, which kind of guard, at least sets up the guardrails a little bit. Uh, the proof of principle, the first uh, first animal, the first in man, the pivotal study and the regulatory approvals are kind of other milestones that are met. And as you meet those milestones from the perspective of strategic, you are de-risking their investment. They can then look in the spreadsheet, have much much less blank space in the spreadsheet in terms of their business projections, and therefore uh, be more confident in in the level of investment that they make.
1: Oh, that's key stuff right there. That's very important to understand, I think. Uh, So that's great. I think you you clear, how long were you at Merit or on the board and and finance committees?
0: Uh, I had a fairly short tenure. Uh, I was on for three years. Okay.
1: And that's considered short. Interesting. It feels like a decent amount of time. Okay. Tell us a little bit about some of the technologies that you are working on now. Uh, I know about, uh, NZ technologies and maybe imaging reality. If you could tell us uh, a little bit about those.
0: Sure. Um, NZ technology was originally a, uh, a project that I'd worked on, uh, with a engineer that was, um, basically developing technologies uh, using uh, computer vision to detect rapid head movements in order to deploy airbags uh, quicker in cars rather than the actual point of impact. This uh, person was introduced to me from one of my former, uh, former residents. Uh, his name is uh, Barank Homeu, uh, who subsequently went down to, went down to uh, um, Baptist and did his fellowship there, but he was an electrical engineer by background. And it's an interesting story because, uh, you know, in the Angio suite, we don't really think much about it. But the next time you're in there, just take account of how many monitors, how many computers, keyboards, and interfaces you have uh, in, in the room. So one day I was actually, I was on call and I was uh, working away, you know, on a procedure in case and uh, um, Dr. Homeyun comes in and he says, you know, I have this really interesting idea um, based on uh, the Microsoft connect, which is that uh, computer vision kind of uh, uh, motion, uh, motion camera that Microsoft had developed. And I said, okay, well, let's see what you have. So. I'm, I'm doing my procedure and I see, I see Dr. Homeyun jumping around like a monkey in the background. Uh, and, and I'm just thinking, okay, what, what's, what's going on here? And what he was actually doing was using the Kinect to create gesture-based controls uh, on, a, on a video game that was on his computer. He said, I, I'd like to see if we can do this in the Android suite. So fast forward five years later, uh, we basically had uh, developed a, a spin-off technology from the University of, uh, of uh, British Columbia uh, and named it NZ Technology for Neymar Zaraknijad, who, uh, who is the electrical engineer, computer science and electrical engineer that started the company. And we embarked on this huge journey of trying to develop electronic uh, PCBs, so uh, printed circuit boards, custom circuit boards, custom uh, um, computer vision cameras. To be able to unify control systems, so that you could actually project a small laser projection of uh, menu systems onto a patient, uh, and literally be able to have a contextual menu uh, where you could touch the uh, the um, drape, and that would activate a button. So you could do anything from ultrasound to um, uh, to IVIS to ablation to even controlling the C-arm systems. So. As, as you know, um, uh, and in any commercialization cycles, there are highs and lows. The highs are, of course, that we actually did develop a commercialized product that was um, starting to distribute and, and, and sell. The lows were the, uh, the pandemic. Just when we were hitting our point of sales, uh, the pandemic basically um, destroyed our, our ability or eliminated our ability to leverage out our, our sales and marketing team. Mm-hmm. So the company, uh, a startup, uh, investment was all friends and family and just kind of small uh, small capital investments was burning burning money pretty, f- pretty quickly. But Nima, uh, Dr. Zaraknijad, had recognized the unmet need, which is in all places you'd never think of, was in elevators. <laughs> so we have a hand gesture control system where you literally don't have to touch anything. It's touchless interaction. Um, it basically detects based on capacitance and computer-aided vision. And he jerry-rigged this to work on an elevator system. And the next thing you know, one of the largest elevator distributors in, in, in the world uh, is now licensing the product and incorporating into their into their installs for new condos and new buildings, but also uh, developing a retro kit so that uh, older elevator systems can incorporate this technology where you literally don't have to touch a button and you can just wave your finger in front of the uh, the button and have the, uh, the floor button activated.
1: Uh, that's an incredible pivot, I would say. <laughs> um, that's an incredible pivot going from medicine to elevators. But- it really is all still healthcare. if I had to say. I think that's the reason why the clinical need was there in the first place was because of the pandemic. Nobody wanted to touch an elevator button. It's just one way of reducing risk.
0: Absolutely. And, and certainly I would say that the uh, amount of enthusiasm and interest uh, from this te- technological twist uh, really um, uh, was really quite exciting and very quick labeling something as military grade or medical grade and trans- translating into a commercial product or a consumer-based product is actually a very powerful, uh, powerful message um, because it really means, uh, especially to investors as well as to end users, that this technology has been pressure tested in the most extreme environments. And and certainly that added to the narrative because there were a number of competitive companies out there that were doing, uh, I would say, similar um, use cases, but really didn't have the credentials to say that they that they had extreme conditions in which this has been tested, validated and and uh, and utilized.
1: Now, oh, that's an awesome story. Now tell us
0: about a little bit about imaging reality. I guess we're pivoting out to uh, video games. Yeah. Um, so uh, imaging reality is a uh, company that I became involved in um, based on a friend of mine who is a veterinarian at uh, uh, at uh, the Vancouver Aquarium. He had a benefactor uh, at the Aquarium Philanthropist who is uh, a legend in uh, in uh, video game programming. So for any of you that had a Nintendo uh, and uh, played uh, any of the uh, electronic art sports games uh, in the uh, uh, late 90s and early 2000s, this uh, person, Eric Kiss, probably wrote them. And as a result of, uh, of uh, all of his work in the video game industry, he became an expert in, in, uh, in graphics processing and rapid, uh, rapid processing. And he decided to explore uh, areas in virtual reality and was looking for a use case. So we have DICOM images, we have multi multi multi-slice CTs, we have MRs with multi-phasic imaging, and he has a pair of VR goggles. So, uh, over the next couple of years, we embarked on a project of developing a, uh, a virtual reality holodeck type system where you can literally put on the VR goggles along with one or 4,000 people, uh, and go into a space and look at volumetric data acquired from a, a CT or an MR, uh, and be able to see it with multiple other studies and multiple other people. Uh, in various forms to create a collaborative space for preoperative planning, uh, for consultation, and also for uh, for learning and teaching.
1: That's great. Like tumor board, I can see that being great between between institutions. And so, what is your role with both of these? I mean, are you using any of your technical background for this, or um, um, I know you have a lot of finance background because you were on the the merit board. I'm just curious, and also obviously the clinical background. I'm just curious where you. What do you find yourself bringing more to, to these companies?
0: Sure. And, and I think that's, uh, that's actually a really interesting point uh, and, and a, a really interesting question because um, after my experiences uh, um, in the past working with CDL, working at the, you know, a number of different organizations and, and processes, I realized that no company or major research or developmental art can really be willed into reality by one person alone. And the opportunity that we have as interventionalists uh, kind of crossing that that or um, uh, crossing that uh, that chasm or building the bridge between clinical application slash use case and the technology or technological know-how, isn't that I'm the most brilliant finance person or the most brilliant engineer, or frankly, the most brilliant physician, but it's the ability to be able to think and see uh, from the perspective of each of the lenses from business uh, from the engineering side and from medicine that really, um, states my value proposition because I can speak the languages and, and really, uh, really be able to create, uh, create synergies between the different disciplines. So as an example with, um, Enza tech, you know, from the academic side I've written papers about the optimization and saving of time and, uh, uh, and also the, um, decreased, um, uh, decreased uh, potential for, inf- uh, for infection, infectious transmission using hand gesture based models, instead of walking out, taking off your gloves and playing with a mouse. Uh, but then strategically, I also have a computer science and engineering background, so I can start translating the clinical need into engineering processes in which then can translate into you know, an end product. With Enza Technologies, which is obviously another technology company, my value proposition is being able to identify the use cases within our day-to-day clinical flow. And looking at it from the perspective of where the knowledge gaps are, because when you know, you're in clinic and you're busy, you're basically just a lemming kind of following along, you know, following along everybody else and just trying to survive. And oftentimes you kind of miss the gap of where you could make things better or um, have a practical application and improvement to your flow. So I truly believe that, uh, that the opportunities that have been afforded to me have to do with the fact that I, I try and look at um, any sort of problem or use case uh, from these different lenses.
1: That is a very good point. You can't be one track if you're in an early startup. You you your hat will change from day to day to day, and you know you have a unique background because you have technical skills uh, along with your clinical and then the finance as well. I think that's that's something that a lot of people don't have those uh, all of those things may have parts, but that's why it's so important to have a team as well.
0: Absolutely, and and uh, you know as I was uh, um, uh, referencing earlier, I think that the concept of innovation and entrepreneurship are two different skill sets. And um, it's very, very rare to find an individual or even uh, 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 two individuals that actually carry strengths in both of those arenas. So that's kind of where having this sense of collaboration, knowing um, where you need to go in your next step rather than just waving your hands in the air, trying to attract attention about an innovation that you have uh, really uh, really, um, uh, is key to the success and long-term viability of of uh, any invention or idea that you have
1: yeah and and segue a little bit into you mentioned cdl before or the the creative destruction lab tell me what your role is with that and kind of your your mentorship that, that goes on as well as in your biomedical engineering department
0: Sure. Well, Creative Destruction Lab is essentially an incubator. And uh, as, uh, as with um, other organizations like, uh, like uh, the BioDesign or BioX processes, essentially what it is, is it's a, it's a collection of people that work within a specific space from different uh, uh, disciplines and different stages that help uh, or assist in, in uh, mentoring early startup companies through the valley of death. Um, so, uh, in terms of the entre- entrepreneurial cycle, uh, there is a there is a phase called the valley of death, where essentially uh, it's uh, usually about eighteen months to four years in, uh, where you're running out of money, you have a mad scramble, uh, and every all hands are on deck. And if you can survive that, generally speaking, you are then blessed with investment with uh, mentorship. And potentially uh, more encouraging support, um, either through uh, strategics, through their you know capital, uh, their marketable securities, investments, or or support along those lines. So, what CDL is designed to do is trying to either shorten or or eliminate that uh, valley of death. As with many incubators, with an understanding that the participation is uh, in goodwill. In other words, you're just you're just trying as a a mentor, whether you're a scientist of finance or a business person with an understanding that there may be a return on investment later on, but you're really passing it forward. It's not about immediate investment. It's not about being parasite. It's not about being an aggressive or predatory investor, but just seeing if uh, companies can make it across that line. And when they do, you can potentially help them either financially or through your know-how to take them to the next level.
1: And can you give me an example maybe of one of the projects you're kind of helping out with now?
0: Uh, Well, the one thing about CDL, unfortunately, is that uh, CDL, its kind of like Vegas. uh, What stays and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and what happens in CDL is supposed to stay in CDL. So, uh, but uh, but certainly, um, anybody who's interested can go onto the website and take a look at some of the success stories. I've got uh, through the process. I apologize. Uh, but, uh, but no, even amongst friends, I have to, I have to keep that. Of, of course.
1: Yeah. Your 2000 closest friends that will hear this. <laughs> um, so tell me, uh, what about the, uh, biomedical engineering school? Uh, you're, uh, you're working on some projects there mentoring, correct?
0: Yeah, that, that, that's actually been a, a very uh, interesting and anxiety, exciting endeavor. I've half-joked to people that it's the best emotion that I've ever had uh, because I was a uh, clinical professor in the Faculty of Medicine before being de- demoted to uh, an associate professor in the School of Biomedical Engineering. Uh-huh. But uh, the, um, the, the, Bi- the School of Biomedical Engineering is essentially uh, like uh, many other uh, schools of engineering uh, with a focus on two areas. On physiologic slash cellular therapies, which I personally believe uh, as interventionalists is, is a huge uh, arena in which we can really conduct and perform precision therapeutics, and then the classic med tech side. Um, so essentially, uh, I have a lab that I'm started that I've started up, and it's referred to as the MIPS Lab, the Minimally Invasive Image Guided uh, Procedure Lab, uh, that now is uh, basically act not only as a, uh, a beacon for graduate students who realize that with my credentials that I'm looking at things from the innovation space with the lens of commercialization outlet, but also has created a a focal point for uh, public-private partnerships uh, with other uh, organizations and startup companies uh, within British Columbia who really need uh, the technological know-how and the credentials of university support to be able to uh, um, be supported through federal grant programs. So um, it, we're spanning kind of all all aspects of it uh, with uh, grants in the in the domain of external non-invasive uh, therapeutic microwave of uh, low-cost AI-driven uh, robotic interventional systems and in, uh, uh, for image-guided procedures and um, other types of um, other types of uh, of. Technical devices like a ferrofluid-driven uh, actuator that can create a uh, micro uh, tiny micro that can steer or uh, or um, be able to um, uh, supply therapeutics through a rotary system. The list is really uh, quite long, but the most uh, exciting part about it is that people, organizations, companies, research groups are collaborating with me with ideas that I would have thought were completely impossible or just outside of my realm of understanding and really being challenged uh, with the um, opportunity to learn about these and find the practical application.
1: Oh, that sounds like a blast. So let me ask the question, with your clinical practice, do you think that your innovation work helps your clinical practice and, and vice versa. I'm just curious, how do the two work together? How do they live together? What's the symbiosis? Do you feel better about your clinical practice because you've got these projects going on simultaneously? Does it kind of make the, the day maybe go a little bit better, a little bit faster, you're a little bit more energized? I'm just curious.
0: Um, well, well, I think as with anything, once you start going down the treadmill and doing the same thing for too long, it becomes mundane and a job. And I can honestly say that, uh, with my involvement in, in CDL, in the school of biomedical engineering, uh, uh at uh, university of British Columbia, my clinical practice, that it never feels that way. Um, because, uh, I have to think differently when I'm thinking about each of these, uh, you know, different facets, but that doesn't mean that they're exclusive and binned. you know, just to kind of put it another way. And I, I, know I made an allusion to it earlier, uh, the way I see it and the, the way I explain it to to, uh, uh, to people who ask is the following. In medicine, we are trained to avoid risk at all costs in the practice of clinical medicine. I think it's perfectly understandable. You don't want to hurt somebody or be a cowboy or go to the extreme. In engineering, you tackle risk as a problem and accept failure as a higher likelihood than success. So you just kind of get up and you do it again and again and again. So that's the iterative part of uh, of engineering. In business, you're constantly calculating risk and making a commitment based on that uh, determined risk. And for me, uh, being able to kind of stretch my brain to think differently, whether it's in a procedure, whether it's thinking about what, uh, you know, what technique or what devices I'm going to use or clinical research, I find that blending all of these, uh, all three of these allows me to think not only laterally, but deeper for problem sets that uh, other people may not have thought of as a problem or identifying un- unmet needs that, that, uh, that haven't really been truly um, uh, understood.
1: And that keeps you energized, you think? Do you think you would have the same passion if you didn't have these, these I'm not going to call them side projects because they're all full projects, but side to your clinical career.
0: Absolutely. Um, because even simple things like uh, a pick line or, you know, heaven forbid, I have to do an NG tube or a biopsy. Now I think about it differently. Whenever I run into something that is a problem, a challenge or an inconvenience, I'm now putting on the uh, engineering hat to see how I can make it better. Or potentially the entrepreneurial slash business hat to see if uh, if there's actually an opportunity or a space for uh, for innovation to translate into an entrepreneurial uh, outcome.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes total sense to me, and I, I'm kind of leading the witness. But uh, do, would you recommend this to our listeners if they have an interest in innovation? Uh, say they've come up with an idea. You know, would you would you recommend that they start knocking those dominoes down and and, and pursuing this out? In parallel to maybe their their clinical career.
0: Well, I I I think that's actually a really a really good question, and the answer is yes. As interventionalists, whether you're cardiology, gastroenterology, interventional vascular, we all are trying to think uh, on the fly and really using technology and devices to advance our practice. Along, obviously, with the learned skills, I think the to be able to level set expectation. Uh, hopefully, in in this innovation series, uh, the uh, um, listeners have really uh, had a better appreciation for the fact that innovation is a cycle. Um, the inspiration is that moment in time, but innovation is a cycle and it takes time. And uh, just to be, bear in mind that everything takes longer than you expect, is more expensive than you, uh, 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 than you think would be and has more challenge uh, than, uh, than you initially anticipated, but the end can be very rewarding. That reward may not be entrepreneurial, but the reward may be uh, kind of internally uh, internalized as doing a better job or, or, or uh, treating a patient better or being more efficient. So if I think the listeners or viewers are thinking about innovation as being inextricably bound to commercial outlet and entrepreneurship, that's not necessarily the case. I, I believe that innovation um, really is, uh, is predicated by inspiration, uh, which is really about thinking about everything you do uh, and really finding those opportunities to improve.
1: That's fantastic. I don't want to end it there, but I think that's such a great place. And if I could try to say a few summary points and and please correct me if, if some of this is wrong. So it's very clear from that last point, And you said this at the beginning, in the beginning, you just said, make things work better. That's how you got into innovation. You weren't trying to be an entrepreneur. You just had a thirst for solving problems and making things better. And one thing led to the next, the snowball got bigger and bigger. Uh, and that's how you end up being an innovator. A lot of times, I think that's a great road to go down. Next is many people have ideas. It's really about evolving that into something tangible. You had a technical side that allowed you to create a minimum viable product on some of these things. And once you see a little bit of success, I'm putting this on you now. Once you see a little bit of success with a prototype, it really gives you the confidence to keep going. Uh, And I loved hearing about that. And I think it's so important to pursue your idea at the beginning, even if it's taking one step or two steps, because it will give you the confidence to keep going. Next, business is a calculating risk is calculating risk. You mentioned you have to think like a strategic. You have to know what they think about. Are they thinking about uh, your product is accretive is to their bottom line? Is it dilutive? Uh, What will your impact be to them? And more importantly, also, as a startup, you need to know that your milestones, achieving milestones, will raise the value of your startup. Going from your intellectual property, uh, getting that filed, prototype, animal studies, first in human, getting through regulatory approval. What you're doing is de-risking the company as you move along. You're de-risking it from a strategic standpoint, which absolutely raises your value. And finally... Stretch your brain to think differently. That's what you said. So having these side projects and innovation for clinicians can really keep you excited. And not only that, it can help you problem solve. Even small uh, clinical issues, you're going to start to put on your engineering hat or your problem solving hat. And it really can keep things interesting and exciting uh, as you move through where no problem is, is too small. Uh, would you add anything to that?
0: No, I, th- I think you've uh, provided a, a wonderful summary to, to the listeners. And um, certainly I I wish uh, everybody well in the future uh, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, everybody is encouraged to uh, find that inspiration and innovate from that inspiration.
1: Fantastic. Okay. well, thank you so much, uh, Dave. We really appreciate having you on and, and sharing your experience and your passion.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.